0: This is not the media. This is hell.
1: Bolivia is a gaseous state. That is, Bolivia's politics have been dominated by natural resources that are the Bolivian economy's lifeblood. The problem is that lifeblood of oil and now natural gas breed racism inequality, and, and violence that often turns deadly, as well as ecological and planetary destruction. Sure, fossil fuels are... Immoral, but they pay the bills Bolivia's politics have been dominated by oil Since it was commodified right around, I don't know, 100 or so years ago Bolivia was then a victim of western imperialism As one nation after another from the global north Made claims to natural resources that were under the feet of Bolivia's indigenous peoples When natural gas was finally discovered in the latter half of the 20th century Bolivians saw their chance to profit from their own resources Having had enough of colonialism The Bolivians nationalized their gas reserves and sent the Westerners packing. Kinda. Outsiders with imperial aspirations were still in Bolivia, tending to their oil. That nationalization of natural gas slowly faded. Deals were made with foreign interests, and while Bolivians were profiting from gas, they were partnering with multinationals. Then came Evo Morales, and the demand for more of those gas profits by the people. Somehow getting a bigger cut of those profits was seen by the West as Socialism when in fact Avo was not All that socialist in fact he was Pretty capitalist but he was at least Pro-indigenous except for those attacks On the indigenous who were an obstacle to the gas Avo needed to fund his economic policies Including modernization and wealth Redistribution So what happens when your supposedly Leftist politics are Funded by fossil fuels by the cause Of the world's greatest challenge climate change How do you square your revolutionary Transformative radical hopes for a Utopian future with the fact that you are what you're, doing, uh, what you're doing is actually just destroying the planet We'll try to figure out the contradiction of Bolivia's redistributive pro-indigenous politics With those politics being funded by fossil fuels Which are destroying the planet When we speak with anthropologist Brett Gustafson Author of Bolivia is in the age of gas Brett is associate professor of sociocultural anthropology At Washington University in St. Louis Brett's work focuses on the anthropology of politics and the political with a particular interest in Latin American social movements, state transformation, and the politics of development. Brett's also the author of the 2009 book, New Languages of the State, Indigenous Resurgence, and in the Politics of Knowledge in Bolivia. You can follow Brett on Twitter at Brett Gustafson. That's G-U-S-T-A-F-S-O-N. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, Gaptooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. It's Wednesday, and that always means producing this morning's show is Richard Norwood. Richard, how was your week?
0: It was well. How are you, sir?
1: I'm doing well, I guess. It's getting colder in it, these yeah. studios. <laughs> and you, you have no heat in the uh, on-air control room, correct? It is hell. <laughs> it is. It's not as warm as hell, but it's, it is hellish. There
0: is a freezing hell. <laughs> that is true. Uh, Richard, what is this week's question from hell? This que- this week's question from hell is how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend?
1: <laughs> how are you frightening children in your neighborhood well, this weekend? My
0: friend D's nuts is scaring the pants off of them. <laughs>
1: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new Gray on Black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out the new Gray on Black This Is Hell t-shirt and all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to you for your support. We're going to have a couple of new pieces of merchandise showing up real soon. If they're not already there, we have a new Gray on Black this is Hell, winter beanie cap, you know, toque, whatever you want to call a winter hat. And I think we're going to have a new gray on black This is Hell hoodie in the next couple of days as well. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash... This is Hell Radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to either of us, Chuck at this is dot com or Alex at this is dot com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff takes another stab at the advertising culture. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell again. How are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? How are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? following our guest. Again, email us your answer or post it on our Facebook page or DM us via Twitter. Just have your answer to us by the end of tomorrow's show. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. But let's take a moment to look back at the very recent past here on This Is Hell. Last Monday, Monday, we spoke with uh, Gloria Dickey about her writing at The Guardian on the Arctic ice cap melting. Gloria explained how the world has pretty much given up on addressing climate change with behavioral changes by us humans. Instead, the consensus seems to be some technological miracle that will come along, is in the offing, and will save us from our own self-destruction. The following day, last Tuesday, we had the return of epidemiologist Rob Wallace to t- discuss his collection of essays on COVID-19 called dead epidemiologists, named for those whose work still influences epidemiology today and what we know about the pandemic and the virus. Rob also pointed to the seeming unwillingness for those, especially in the U.S., but around the world as well, as we're seeing with violence in France, who refuse to respond to the pandemic with behavioral changes like wearing masks and social distancing. Instead, and much like Republicans in the Trump administration, they're waiting for the miracle of a vaccine. And as Rob pointed out, that vaccine we've been told about may be a lot more miraculous than we're being led to believe, as there has, according to Rob, Never been a vaccine for any SARS-related virus ever. And COVID is a newer version of SARS. So immediately following last Tuesday's show, after consecutive episodes of This Is Hell, where we lamented our hope for miracles to save us from climate change and the pandemic, instead of directly challenging both, pointing out that hope and miracles are not sufficient remedies in a time of crisis or crises, immediately after last Tuesday's show where we derided miracles, I walked out the door of our office and studio here above Carrie's Lounge. And on my way home, I did the same thing I do after every show on Tuesday and after every Patreon podcast on Fridays. Stopped by the liquor store across the street and bought lottery tickets. I, I buy them so frequently there that when I step in the door, they start printing them out before I even ask No, you can't hope for miracles to fix climate change or come up with a cure for a pandemic. Yet twice a week, I hope for the miracle of the lottery to fix my own personal bottom line, because to be honest, it's going to take a miracle to fix my relationship with capitalism. Last week, after we read the rest of your answers to the question from hell, which last week was, what else will... Uh, Let's see, what else will fall with the autumn leaves? I gave my response, which was what will fall is whatever remnant of my innocence I still have left in believing that voting can make a damn bit of difference when the government that supposedly represents me imposes the demands of the wealthy upon us through police violence and creating a society of cruelty and a cult of death. Well, like my inconsistency on not believing in miracles will save us and then buying lottery tickets immediately after today's show, me and my girly are going to vote. So I guess I still have some innocence left in believing in electoral politics. That's when I saw something circulating on social media that made me reconsider voting or not voting. There's a transcript of an interview with the late author, writer, poet, and black liberationist Amiri Baraka, uh, where he's asked if revolutionary change can happen through the electoral process. Amiri responds, the use of electoral politics is only a tactic. It does have to be utilized because if you don't, you will find yourself in a position where you are backed up against the ovens. And then the only thing you can do is fight for your life. I don't think in the end anything other than short of armed revolution will change this system of monopoly capitalism and and racism and women's oppression. For you to not fight for every kind of democratic right inch by inch is mad. So I think those kind of sweeping leftist ultra-revolutionary statements that all the candidates are the same because they come from the same class serve to do nothing but fog up the reality that you have to fight for every inch. Yes, you have to utilize voting. Absolutely, you have to utilize it. People died in the South to get the right to vote. And then you're going to tell people don't vote. vote. It doesn't mean a damn thing. That's bizarre. The question isn't what does it mean. The question is, sorry, what does it mean? It has a limited and specific meaning. But it has to be utilized. So, look, I know by early voting today, I'll not get the radical transformative revolution that I know is necessary for our long-term survival on this planet or even any short-term victory over the cruelties of capitalism that make life so depressing and ultimately so unfulfilling. But I don't want to back myself up against the ovens so I can win some lefty purity contest. I know my vote for president doesn't count because the Electoral College and its white supremacy will choose who will be in the White House come January, not the actual votes of actual voters. But if it wasn't for the seemingly pointless voting on non-binding referendums even, we likely would not have recreational marijuana in Illinois today. And today in Illinois, I get to vote to tax the rich and end the aggressive flat tax that puts the burden of the state's finances on the poor. No, I don't believe that voting will miraculously change, the u- change this into the utopia I desire. I do not have hope in voting as a miracle salve to heal the many wounds inflicted upon us by the market and its supporters. I also don't think that the Democrats will miraculously step back from everything Trump. But Biden Schmeiden I got rich people attacks. And if taking the burden off the poor and placing down the wealthy isn't enough to get voters to the polls, then... I don't know, go to a low-income neighborhood and tell people of color whose friends and family members fought and died for the right to vote, for your right to vote, and explain why you won't vote to them. Because while you are trying to explain that, you'll likely find yourself saying, this is hell. Or you'll find somebody who agrees with you that voting doesn't matter. And then again, you'll be saying, Jesus, this is hell. Coming up on This Is Hell, Bolivia is a gaseous state and more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? How are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live stream, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is hell, Bolivia's politics are dominated by oil and gas. Fossil fuels determine what Bolivia can do politically. And Evo Morales' wealth redistribution was dependent upon the profits made from extractive industries. So what happens when supposedly leftist politics are funded by the very destructive processes that the left opposes? What happens when your New Deal is funded by burning fossil fuels? Here to help us understand all the many contradictions within Bolivia's politics and their relationship with fossil fuels, anthropologist Brett Gustafson is author of Bolivia in the Age of Gas. Welcome to This is Hell, Brett.
2: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Chuck.
1: Brett's also the author of the 2009 book, New Languages of the State, Indigenous Resurgence, and the Politics of Knowledge in Bolivia. Brett is Associate Professor of Sociocultural Anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis, and you can follow Brett on Twitter. At Brett Gustafson, you write that fossil fuels are central both to Bolivia's long history of revolutionary thought and to the global expansion of imperial capitalism. Therein lies the political challenge for the coming generations, as it does for all of us, rethinking radical and progressive change that can move beyond the social and ecological violence inherent in the material things we know as fossil fuels and the excesses they intensify, war, pollution, patriarchy, racial capitalism, and global warming. Can we have radical and progressive change without using fossil fuels that cause what that change opposes most, which is war, pollution, patriarchy, racial capitalism, and global warming? Can we have a Green New Deal in any form without using fossil fuels in some sort of transition to that radical and progressive change?
2: Oh, I'm sure we can have it uh, uh, without fossil fuels. I I think we have to have it without fossil fuels. I don't think the planet has much choice. Um, The question is uh, how we're going to get there. And um, this is something that Bolivia is certainly struggling with. But as you uh, point out, we're struggling with it as well. So uh, short answer to that question is uh, we, we really don't have a choice. We've got to think way beyond fossil fuels.
1: You quote a retired oil worker Saying that the true nationalization Was in 1967 When essentially Bolivia kicked out All of the people who were trying to Exploit the natural gas reserves in Bolivia You write that in Bolivia The contemporary age of gas is also shaped By the radical political shift that happened in 2005 After a series of upheavals Recounted in part uh, in your book That uh, year that saw the election Of uh, Evo Morales The country's first indigenous president It was historic for a country with an. Apartheid like history of inequality between the lighter skinned elites and the country's largely indigenous majority. Evo Morales led a a movement called the Movement El Socialismo, uh, whatever, MAS, Movement Towards Socialism, uh, turning (laughs) back over a decade of neoliberal privatizations and free market reforms. In 2006, Morales decreed the nationalization of the gas industry once again. How is that nationalization different from what the retired oil worker told you was the true nationalization back in
2: 1969? Right. Well, the long history of Bolivia is one in which the left has always seen government control of natural resources like oil and gas as the key to a revolutionary project. So. Back in 67, as that oil worker was uh, reminding me, uh, the government actually expropriated uh, Gulf oil. Um, they basically walked into their offices and said, get out, we're taking this. Uh, that, that was true nationalization because the government took ownership of the oil industry. Um, it didn't last all that long. And at the end of the day, um, the United States pressure forced Bolivia to pay, pay for what it had taken. Uh, But at any rate, that's what true nationalization means, is the government takes ownership over those uh, resources and all of the facilities, the oil wells, the pipelines, the gas stations, everything. Uh, When Evo Morales came in uh, in 2005, 2006, the, the people were also demanding nationalization of the gas industry, and Evo himself said he would do it. Uh, but global conditions were a lot more complicated. Uh, Evo's political power was significant, but not absolute. And, uh, what ended up happening was more basically a a rewriting of contracts. Evo said, look, uh, if you want to drill for gas in this country, then we're going to rewrite the contracts so that most of the money stays in the country. You'll still get your profit, but, uh, A larger percentage is going to stay in the country. And it made absolute sense. I mean, even the World Bank, which is no revolutionary organization, uh, points out that if you've got oil or gas, most of that wealth should stay in the country because uh, foreign investors don't actually invest to produce. it. Once you're drilling, it just keeps coming. Uh, So it's 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 uh, it's a it's uh, it's called super profits, uh, basically money that you don't really earn. So why should you send it to Wall Street? So that's what Evo did, and um, first of all, the, the gas companies protested. They said, "Oh no, this is socialism. This uh, we're gonna, we're not gonna invest. We'll leave your your country will fail." And you know, Evo was standing there with millions of people standing behind him, and eventually they came to the table and they rewrote the contracts. But at the end of the day, that oil worker was pointing out uh, the Bolivian government took some control over parts of the. Infrastructure, but the major operators in Bolivia are still foreign capitalist firms, mostly uh, primarily from Brazil and Spain and Argentina.
1: But that apparently was too much for Avo's opponents as he was forced to flee the country last year and removed from office. What does that level of nationalization, whatever level that Avo actually did impose, when it's just the rewriting of contracts, but what does that rewriting of contracts being seen as a threat to oil interests? Say to you about the current state of oil and gas politics in Bolivia. How little do oil and gas interests tolerate when it comes to any impact on their share of profits from natural resources, whether it's Bolivia or anywhere?
2: Well, it's true. They, they were uh, actually earlier than last year. They uh, backed efforts to topple Evo Morales and uh, eventually Morales and his party, the movement to socialism Uh, was able to get the upper hand and and said, look, you're going to calm down, stop trying to overthrow us. We have the people behind us. And they sort of were brought to heel, you might say. Um, And in fact, later in Evo's time in office, we're talking 2010 to the present, more or less, uh, Evo himself sort of became slightly more conservative. Um, Fans of Evo Morales won't want to hear that, but it's true. Uh, kind of backed away from the more radical proposals, and, and uh, a lot of people were, were doing quite well. The banks do quite well when you've got a lot of gas money in the economy. What happened in, in, in 2019 was a combination of a lot of things that weren't directly tied to gas, but at the end of the day, what the opponents of Evo Morales wanted was basically a, a, a turn at the table or a, a turn at the trough, you might say. Um, this is how Bolivian politics has long worked as people take turns running the state so you can uh, access its wealth. And um, there was a sort of a decline in, in, in gas prices and, and the, the big agro industrial elite was getting concerned about their future. And there was an attempt to basically grab the reins of the state. And um, that's what we saw uh, uh, in the November 2019 coup that that forced Evo to to leave the country, first to Mexico and then to Argentina, where he is right now.
1: You write that in the 1960s, a revolutionary vision of economic and political democracy motivated the demand for nationalization of gas. Four decades later, a similar vision, along with new words like decolonization and plurinationalism, congealed in a popular nationalist refrain, the gas is ours do natural resources does gas in bolivia promote nationalism was was morales's socialism fueled by fossil fuels and nationalism because both of those sound like very contradictory is, is leftist <laughs> nationalism a contradiction is are leftist pol- uh, policies that are fueled by fossil fuels is, is that a contradiction
2: well not not in Bolivia or Venezuela or Mexico or um, even Brazil. Um, it certainly sounds, it uh, does, doesn't really sound right to, to, to those of us in the United States who have come to think of fossil fuels as being tied to the right. Uh, but um, as I said before, for, for many decades, uh, Latin Americans confronted uh, big oil companies, Gulf Oil, I mentioned, Standard Oil, Exxon, Chevron, coming from the United States, drilling for oil, causing all sorts of ecological problems, and then not creating any 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 development, uh, not not dealing with poverty, and so it was quite accurate uh, for the left to construct a vision of nationalists. Uh, politics that involved uh, taking control of fossil fuels and redirecting that wealth towards national development. Now, that vision is still deeply felt, but it emerged out of a time where we didn't think about climate change. Uh, uh, We didn't uh, really recognize the ecological side of things. Uh, The question of indigenous rights wasn't really on the left's agenda back in the 1920s. So uh, it's a very powerful vision. And, and I confess, uh, I've worked since the 1990s in Bolivia. and I, I've, I've learned to internalize the same thing. Uh, so when you had thousands of people in the streets of Bolivia chanting, el gas es nuestro, el gas es nuestro, the gas is ours. I mean, that I mean, brings chills to me right now. That's a very powerful collective sentiment that says uh, we, we, we need this uh, we need this resource, uh, and we need the, 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 this wealth to stay in the country, and we don't want to be robbed anymore. So if, if you look at it through that perspective, then then there's not a contradiction. If you sort of start thinking about climate change and dependence on foreign capital and, and other things, then the vision starts to unravel a little bit.
1: So let's disappoint both Avo's supporters and his opponents, Brett, how... <laughs> How was Avo not a socialist?
2: Well, um, <laughs> to to his credit, I, I should say first, uh, to his credit and to that of the thousands of, of people organized in social movements behind him, uh, as the name of the party suggests, it was a movement towards socialism. And in some forms, there were expressions of policy shifts I'm writing right now about land reform which had a lot of uh, positive socialist potential uh, the problem was is, is that uh, Bolivia was not able to break its dependence on foreign capital and that's that's to be understood that's something that is often talked about in leftist circles is can there be one socialist country in a capitalist world but the other uh, limitation was you know it's kind of like the gas example Uh, unwilling to uh, take absolute government control over the industry. That's the first one. Um, Later in Evo's time, he made some concessions to, or his government made some concessions to, the big agro business in eastern Bolivia. That's where the real power lies in the country. Now, had he had a revolutionary... um, uh, sort of hegemony, you might say, meaning, meaning absolute control of the armed forces or mobilized revolutionary troops, they might have moved to dismantle some of that big agro-business power. But that just wasn't the case. This is a, a different kind of, uh, different kind of uh, historic moment where uh, uh, you couldn't just go and seize land. So um, there's still uh, uh, several years to go before we see a a deepening of socialism in Bolivia. And it remains to be seen what this new government will be able to do. But um, the the, the basic answer is that um, Evo was unable to dismantle very powerful political forces that uh, that one would probably have to do in order to implement a more radical socialist project.
1: Avo also had a wealth redistribution program that wealth distribution uh redistribution program is what the right here in the u.s saw as socialism how is that redistribution not a sign of socialism
2: <laughs> yeah well these days you know even joe
1: biden supposedly a socialist he's a, <laughs> you're you're making a mistake there brett he's a marxist you totally Never. missed the vote
2: right so yeah it doesn't take much to get labeled that uh, these days so maybe we should redefine the whole thing um yeah, no, though the the redistribution, pro- as I said in, in the early days of Evo's term, the most radical thing we were all applauding was the land reform. Uh, when you take unproductive land that uh, you know fat cats are just sitting on, and you redistribute it to the poor, that that was amazing. Um, some of the other projects that that Evo implemented with gas resources, the revenues from the natural gas, um, included. <clears throat> Uh, payments to school children to help them buy school supplies, payments to expectant mothers uh, to decrease uh, infant mortality and, 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 and uh, maternal mortality, uh, payments to elderly people who didn't have a retirement pension. Uh, towards the end of his time, he was trying to, 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 to get in a kind of a, a, a basically a Medicare for all type program, a national health insurance program, the doctors of, of all people, uh, well, we have this problem in the States too. Uh, the doctors were opposed to that. So um, there were a, a number of uh, uh, redistributive uh, policies. Um, but uh, there again, uh, they weren't socialist uh, in that they didn't uh, hand over collective ownership of productive, uh, the means of production to workers, uh, let's say. And they didn't really transform the structure of the economy of itself. These, these cash transfers, as they're called, are actually uh, a moderate proposal for alleviating poverty. Uh, doesn't make them bad, but certainly doesn't make them socialist. <clears throat> what uh, the conservatives don't like uh, are things like Evo's uh, push to uh, force the foreign gas companies to pay higher taxes and higher royalties to the government.
1: Uh, again, that's
2: not socialism, but they still don't
1: like it. You write that gas and mineral extraction shape politics in particular ways, generally distorting political incentives, intensifying inequality, and weakening democratic processes. Can the inequality caused by gas and mineral extraction be overcome with redistribution? What was that? What Avo uh, was trying to achieve, and if so, how successful was he at addressing the inequality caused by extraction?
2: Right. Well, it's kind of to not to repeat uh, uh, the, the sort of challenge, but uh, if gas prices are high and you've got a lot of money coming in, you can certainly address inequality through these redistributive policies. And Evo did that. Uh, but what we're seeing now, and you could also look over Venezuela as well, if if gas prices fall or in the case of Venezuela, oil prices fall, uh, your means for, for doing that. Uh, run out basically and if you haven't invested in other industries that create employment or if you haven't restructured the agrarian sector to distribute more jobs that that, that you know can last on their own, then you enter into a crisis where uh, uh, it, it's been sort of you know, while the while the prices are high, you can certainly redistribute, but once the prices go down you're back where you started so. So that's the challenge Um, and uh, what, you know, Bolivians are thinking now or or some are that, well, gas prices are down and the gas reserves are dwindling, but now we're going to turn and look at lithium. So that's the new sort of the new thing on the horizon that people are hoping will uh, bring in resources.
1: I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you if a gas economy can see a future without gas, a future of instead lithium or some other you know, natural resources. Can can a gas economy, as you describe it in Bolivia, can it see a future maybe not without gas at all, but also maybe including a possible future of, of clean energy?
2: Well, that's certainly the hope um, for all of us. Uh, in Bolivia's case, uh, uh, Evo certainly could have done a lot more to expand uh, wind and solar. I mean if anything that the, the, the high levels of solar radiation in Bolivia uh, make it perfectly suited for, for solar energy. Um, the challenge there is that you can't really export solar energy. you could if there was a demand and you had a, you know big enough facilities but you know their need is for foreign currency so, Uh, The lithium question is uh, uh, fraught, but uh, a lot of people think that if they can do something besides just export raw lithium, say you can have the Bolivian battery industry uh, not under control of Elon Musk and Tesla, uh, but if you had a Bolivian battery industry, there's even a nascent electric vehicle industry in Bolivia that you might be able to conceive of uh, a, a way of industrializing lithium and, and not just exporting it. And that would that would address some of the, 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 the limits of just, you know, exporting raw materials. Um, you know, the other thing uh, that uh, both here in the States, you're talking about New Green Deal and different ways of conceptualizing energy production. I mean, we, we need really decentralized, uh, community-controlled uh, energy infrastructures, um, not sort of coming from the top-down state, that vision we were talking about before, but uh, localized forms of of energy production and distribution, uh, that's certainly absolutely feasible in Bolivia. Um, There's a lot of inertia in the government to sort of continue the export of raw materials, but there is equal amount of uh, uh, pressure coming from people saying we need to rethink this, uh, just like we see in the United States.
1: That's that, that idea of clean energy not being able to be a, a globalized commodity like oil or natural gas. That's 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 fascinating. So, do you think that that is an insurmountable obstacle when it comes to addressing climate change? That clean energy, as we have it today, just doesn't fit within the globalized economy that we have the way that oil and gas fit.
2: Well, this is certainly why we see so much opposition to uh, smart climate policy from big capitalists. I mean, for a long time, the American chamber of commerce was one of the biggest climate deniers in this country because you can't, uh, speculate so easily on wind and sun as you can on oil and gas, because you can't put it in a boat and ship it across the world or, or, uh, store it in a tank and speculate on its prices. Uh, now, there are other ways that capitalists can control wind and solar, and this is, this is the risk, is that we simply uh, shift over from uh, uh, what I call fossil capital, that's a phrase from Andreas Mom, to wind capital or, or solar capital. So they're certainly looking at uh, uh, new ways to uh, not give up power, and this is what uh, the Green New Deal thinkers uh, are are trying to think beyond, is can we have an energy transition that doesn't simply... Uh, transfer power from fossil capital to wind capital. And that's why the questions like who controls the lithium, who controls the land where solar will go, uh, who, who controls the uh, uh, infrastructure for wind? Is this going to be huge, giant wind projects that uh, only big capital can afford, or can we think at other scales? Sorry, my dog's barking. <laughs> uh uh, other scales that uh, uh, communities and and, and uh, uh, elect- collective organizations can control.
1: I think your dog is opposed to uh, clean energy, Brett. I think that's what's happening right there. Oh, we just lost Brett. How did that happen? Did we just run out of Skype money? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> Sorry, you lost Oh, there you go. Okay, we're back on. Hey, Brett, uh, we're speaking with anthropologist Brett Gustafsson. He is author of Bolivia in the Age of Gas, and he's with his dog, who is opposed to clean energy, apparently. Uh, So, uh, Brett, um, is the nationalization, nationalism of oil extraction that Evo was trying to embrace, is that opposed to the rights of the indigenous? Can a gas economy be both nationalist and pro-indigenous?
2: Uh, yes, and it was in many ways. It was. Uh, a lot of people sort of picked on Evo because of some, some key conflicts between the government and indigenous people that were sort of raised up into national crises. But in the part of Bolivia where I work in, uh, uh, people I work with, Guarani, native Guarani peoples, um, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who's opposed to gas, Uh, Evo invested a lot in the region, created new schools for teaching and learning indigenous languages and uh, their indigenous universities and um, investments in the communities. And, you know, someone might might cynically say, well, that was sort of the buy off their consciousness and buy their support. Uh, But even so, there was uh, uh, still widespread support for Evo Morales. Um, So, yes, you you, you can do it. the problem becomes when uh, the, 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 the gas reserves, the big reserves start dwindling and the gas companies, the foreign companies, are, are, uh, the, the prices are going down. And so they, they're, they're, they're pressuring the government to improve their conditions for making money. And part of the way you make money as a gas industry or an oil industry is by working quickly because time is money. And uh, the, the way you work more quickly is to do away with slow processes like consulting communities, doing in-depth uh, environmental analyses. Those are all things that can slow down a project. And, and as the prices dwindled and companies started pressuring the government, uh, that's when Evo and, and started backing off and saying, OK, well, cons- consulting communities, you know, you've got a week to do that. Uh, if you Can't get it done in a week. That's tough or environmental analysis. Well, we're going to shorten the time from 90 days to 30 days. And, and so that, that's where you start. You know, that's where you, you start giving up sovereignty and, and backtracking on indigenous rights is when the companies start saying, you know, we got to speed this thing up.
1: How much, you mentioned sovereignty, how much do fossil fuels undermine sovereignty when you have to depend on others, when you have to depend on it being an export, and when you have to depend on other uh, outside interests, uh, building the infrastructure necessary to extract those materials? How much can fossil fuels be a threat to sovereignty?
2: Yeah, well, that's that's that can be absolutely a threat. I mean, we see that in the United States, uh, these uh, battles over pipelines and fracking and so forth, where the, the industry basically dismantles democracy to pursue its interests. Um, and that's the contradiction, going back to this thing about the left and fossil fuels. At, at the end of the day, the, the hope for the left was to secure sovereignty, meaning we don't have to listen to the IMF. We don't have to listen to the World Bank. We're going to have our own resources and make our own decisions. And to an extent, Evel was able to do that for a while. But as I say, when the when the when the prices start declining, or the condition or the reserves start declining, and you've created a lot of expectations, then it's not the state that's deciding anymore. Then it starts to be the the oil companies that start uh, deciding, and that's when sovereignty starts eroding. Um, as I say, that's what we see across the uh, the United States as well. I mean, we're basically handing over our democratic voice uh, because of. Uh, pressure from the oil and gas industry.
1: You mentioned how gas economies can fuel violence against people, especially violence against indigenous people. So how do the indigenous who you speak with, how do they square that violence towards the indigenous caused by the gas economy with the kind of resources that they do get, they benefit from in the gas economy?
2: Yeah, that's the the. the, 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 the kind of uh, sad or tragic part. And, and when I say violence, this comes in multiple forms, and it's not necessarily the kind of, uh, you know, physical violence of, of guns and bullets and so forth. It's more um, uh, what we call a slow violence or ecological violence, so uh, gradual uh, degradation of environments in indigenous communities uh, forms of violence tied to gender and affecting women, especially one is uh, wherever you have gas or oil operations, you see the expansion of human trafficking, uh, sexual violence, sexual exploitation, uh, because you just basically bringing in a lot of men into an area uh, where there's a growing demand for uh, sex, basically. And, That's certainly expanded in southeastern Bolivia's human trafficking and sexual exploitation. Um, So uh, ecological violence, another outgrowth is a lot of poor rural and indigenous uh, men uh, don't really have the training or education to get the high paid jobs in the industry, but they get jobs clearing brush or clearing forest or laying seismic lines. That's when they detonate dynamite in the forest to to see where the gas is under the ground. Uh, As you can imagine, that's a bit destructive. Um, And that that brings an influx of cash into the communities. That can be good, but that can also bring with it uh, higher alcohol consumption. And higher alcohol consumption exacerbates violence against women, domestic violence. So these are all sorts of uh, uh, more uh, quotidian forms of violence that uh, to answer your question, are often invisibilized or, or made less visible. So uh, there are things that nobody wants to talk about. What they want to talk about is a shiny new stadium that the gas money built or the shiny new school that the gas money built. Uh, but they don't want to talk about that Those sort of uh, on the ground uh, violences that are, that are harder to see.
1: And what about that violence against um, the uh, environment or the ecology of the ecological violence of the area? How much is that made invisible for the non-indigenous who live in big cities, maybe the technocrats who are coming up with the policies to impose on regions like the Chaco, where you uh, do your studies where they have a lot of oil exploration? So uh, what is, uh, how does that end up working out? I, I mean, it just seems like a very complicated situation.
2: Well, it is, and, you know, this is the tricky thing about gas. Uh, oil, you know, if you have an oil spill, you see it. It's there. It's in the water. It, uh, uh, it's obviously uh, contaminating, and it's uh, destructive. Uh, uh, but gas is, is a little trickier because it's kind of like all this flaring we have in Texas and Pennsylvania. You can't see it Uh and you can't see how that when they re-inject, you know, when you drill for oil or gas, you inject a lot of what's called drilling fluids and muds and chemicals down into the well to, to help get the drill down there, but also to make the gas keep coming out. And, and that brings with it that toxic fluid comes back up. You have to do something with that. Well, what do they do with it? I mean, both here and in Bolivia, they, they re-inject it back under the ground. But, but it's very hard to see uh, and determine whether uh, that affects uh, water supplies. You can't really see what's in the air, so we just need a lot more uh, research to to uh, make visible those those impacts. Um, and that's why a lot of you know there hasn't been there hasn't been a huge uproar over gas pollution in Bolivia because it's it's, it's hard to see.
1: So was. AVO's economic policy fossil fuel capitalism with a smiling face? Because if it worked, I could see how the fossil fuel industry might promote such an idea as it may lead to their impact on the environment being tolerated as some sort of social contract or grand bargain. So was that the idea fossil fuel capitalism with a smiling face? I I think
2: you hit it uh, exactly right. Um, I think uh, even the fossil fuel industry realized that they weren't going to be able to uh, extract the gas without a nationalist vision. You just can't pull it off in, in, in Bolivia. Uh, you know, I t- tell my students, I say, well, you know, could you imagine a, a movement of students in the United States going out into the streets and shouting, the oil is ours or the gas is ours? You know, it just doesn't fit our cultural and political matrix. But it certainly resonates with Bolivia. And there was no way they were going to get uh, uh, gas exported to Brazil or Argentina without a nationalist story to tell. And Evo was able to tell that nationalist story, and that allowed the gas to uh, leave the country. And so, um, so yeah, I think you're exactly right. Uh, Fossil fuel capitalism with a smiling face. Um, Not to be facetious and not to take away what what Evo achieved and and what what he represented, but at the end of the day, I I think somewhere in the book I say that... uh, Evo Morales achieved what the, the, the sort of hardcore capitalists couldn't, and that was the export of gas.
1: You write that Petrobras, the Brazilian company extracting gas in Bolivia, can be said to control a cheap energy production apparatus for Brazil. Though Brazil's offshore oil and gas and uh, its growing turn to renewables now threatens to diminish its demand for Bolivian gas. At the moment, Bolivia is an energy colony, or as a Brazilian law student in a bus crossing Mato Grosso do Sul told me, Bolivia is like a little thing stuck to your body, like an appendix. What happens to Bolivia when Brazil has the elective surgery of excising an organ that apparently uh, Brazil's economy just doesn't need? Right.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry to use that metaphor, but uh, that's what she said. Um, And it is true that... uh, Brazilian demand for Bolivian gas uh, will decrease in coming years uh, now that they're expanding their own offshore production, hopefully moving towards renewables, although not not quickly enough. Um, And this is one of the challenges that this new government faces, both in Brazil and Argentina. his other big customer, Argentina has uh, tried to expand fracking, is expanding fracking in in southern Argentina uh, with the hope of not having to buy gas from Bolivia. Uh, Of course, in both cases, we wish Argentina and Brazil would would shift to renewables, but uh, that's a challenge. Um, And this is uh, 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 what Bolivia faces, is the loss of its uh, customers. Now, for a long time, you know, the initial idea before Evo Morales was that uh, the US, uh, U.S. companies, Sempra, and some other Sempra is a California-based uh, natural gas company. Sempra was going to build a huge pipeline across Bolivia and across the Andes and and ship that natural gas uh, as liquefied natural gas up to Baja, California, put it into the pipeline infrastructure, and then sell it in California. This is back in the days of Enron. I don't know if you remember Enron. Um and high demand in California, so so that that sort of pipe dream, not to make a pun because it was a pipeline pipeline dream we might say. Uh, this still gets floated every once in a while. That you know, if we can find some more gas, even if Brazil and Argentina don't buy it, maybe we can revive that uh, you know liquid nat- liquefied natural gas plan to ship it to the United States. Um, I mean, I don't think that's a great idea either, but uh, they're floating that. Um, so. All of this is to say that uh, the problem is, is when you just if that's all you keep thinking about, then you're going to come up with these schemes and capitalists are going to be there to finance them because they were looking to make a lot of money off of that pipeline. Um, and Evo frustrated that, uh, fortunately. But um, I, I think this is the challenge is we need to think in diff- to start thinking in different ways. Uh, and that's a challenge for us uh, here in the United States,
1: too. You mentioned the U.S. empire and our desire on both the Democratic and Republican side to deny that empire. But you also write that uh, the U.S. quest for hemispheric access to fossil fuel resources, couched in the language of energy integration and in open markets, is a core component of energy and empire today. How do we understand open markets differently when we understand them as imperial projects? Because it just made me think of how the American empire is. It's so bound to fossil fuels that any threat to fossil fuels would be a threat to us empire. So, so how do we understand open markets differently when we understand them as imperial projects?
2: Well, um, Open markets may, well, they don't really sound like a great idea to me, but, uh, you know, may sound like a great idea uh, if, if you didn't have huge inequalities uh, uh, between countries. Uh, so open markets in the situation of U.S. economic power and relative lack of economic power in places like Bolivia simply translate to domination and exploitation. And that's what we saw for the past century or so in the relationship between the United States and Bolivia. Open markets simply meant you sell us stuff cheaply, period. And don't put up government barriers to us getting it cheaply. So it was, well, for the Spaniards, it was silver. For the United States during World War I and World War II, it was tin. You know, all the sardine cans and, and, and uh, stuff that our soldiers used in World War II all that stuff was made from Bolivian 10 and, uh, we twisted Bolivia's arm for decades to keep it cheap. Uh, so you can call that open market, uh, or you can call that imperialism and, and you're referring to the same uh, relationship. Uh, that's what Evo sort of put a stop to when he said, no, we're not going to sell this cheaply. We're going to sell it on our terms and we're going to keep some of the money. Uh, so that was a challenge, uh, uh, the other challenge came from Venezuela, which said, "You know what? We're going to sell some of this oil to China, and we're not just going to deal in dollars. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to diversify our, our relationships. So that's why we have such a problem with Venezuela, because it, it it's not just open markets. Uh, it's it's the connection between the fossil fuel industry and the dollar uh, that uh, that uh, is a challenge to the the current uh, order. And that's uh, going back to what I said earlier. That's why." Capitalists uh, uh, are so uh, so de- defensive of fossil fuels because it's it's sort of a, a proxy for the dollar.
1: So we have to talk about the election last weekend and how it relates to your book. You write. Of Evo's detractors, an old anti-imperialist, Enrique Mariaca Bilbao, left after the uh, Morales government frustrated his efforts to audit gas contracts with foreign companies. Raul Prada, an early theorist of plurinationalism, left after the watering down of the Constitution. Alejandro Almara's was an early MAS MAS militant forced out for being too committed to indigenous rights. That all of these... Prominent leftist figures are men as part of the problem As various radical feminists were less inclined to uh, board the androcentric train of fossil fuel power in the first place. Many are the most vociferous critics of the MAS government today. So here's how the AP reported on last weekend's election in Bolivia that brought Evo's party back to the presidency. Bolivia appeared Monday to be shifting sharply away from the conservative policies of the U.S.-backed interim government that took power last year after leftist President Evo Morales resigned with the self-exiled leader's party claiming victory in a weekend presidential election. The leading rival of uh, Morales's hand-picked successor, Luis Arsa, uh, conceded defeat, as did uh, interim um, uh, president uh, Jenine Anez, as, as a bitter foe of Morales. So was Arsa in any way a critic of Evo Morales like some of the other leftists were? What, it, it, would you describe uh, Arsa as a leftist?
2: Um <clears throat> Well, it kind of goes back to the Biden being a socialist question. Um, uh, sure, yes. Arce uh, was uh, was not a critic of Evo Morales. In fact, Arce was Evo's uh, minister of the economy for almost the entire 14 years he was in office. So very close ally of Evo Morales, and for many, the architect of economic growth and stability. So as a lot of Credence both from the left, but also uh, some grudging respect from the right uh, because of the way that they managed this uh, massive wealth from natural gas. Um, Now, those other folks that you mentioned that had left Evo's government early on, um, those were really committed, ideologically committed leftists and nationalists who. were either pushed out or left because they didn't like the compromises that Evo was making uh, with power, with, 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 with big business, as it were. Um, so the, the, the sort of bigger point is that you see in Bolivia, many people sort of assume that Evo Morales and the MAS, they, they're leftists, they're committed socialists. And, and if, if, if you criticize them, that that makes you a rightist. But, you know, it's just not true. There are plenty of people on the left who are uh, critical of, of of Morales and the MAS precisely because of the compromises they made, precisely because of the limitations uh, in some of their policies and and some of the other issues. Uh, you know, we mentioned before violence against women, that's just not in the gas parts of the, the country. It's a major issue in Bolivia is violence against women. And uh, Evo's uh, government was sort of too cozy with the police and the and the and, the, and the, the legal system to really push back on that. So you know, on the one hand, yes, if you you can you can be a leftist and support Evo and, and, and for pushing back against U.S. empire, but you know, if you're really a coherent, uh, if you're really coherent in your ideas, you really also have to be honest and 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 you know, criticize where, where, where criticism is due. Um, and that's sort of what we, we we see in the moment
1: So how much did Avo challenge imperialism?
2: Well I think it's certainly uh, 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 because of the uh, connections between uh, Bolivia and Venezuela and Ecuador and at the time Brazil when Lula was still in office they, uh, uh, it represented a serious challenge to U.S. hegemony in Latin America. And that began to break down when Chavez died and the oil prices started to fall. But, uh, there was a real challenge to, uh, uh, U.S. control of, of the fossil fuel industry for one thing, but, but also U.S. policies and other dimensions, including this, you know, this idiotic drug war that we've been waging in Bolivia for many years, uh, The intervention of USAID, I mentioned the IMF. I mean, this is the beautiful thing about Luis Arce, the new president. When he was head of the Ministry of Economy, the IMF would come down to Bolivia each year and say, well, you're spending too much money. You should do this. You should do that. You should do this. You should do that. Literally, you can read the the, the reports of the government and the the Bolivian government literally told the IMF for the first time in in decades. Thank you for your advice. We're going to do it our way. And that's just beautiful. So you've got to give him credit for that.
1: We have been speaking with anthropologist Brett Gustafson. He is author of Bolivia in the Age of Gas. And you can follow Brett on Twitter, (laughs) at Brett Gustafson. Brett, I have one last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. (laughs) Six days from now, people are going to be uh, at least watching their TVs to see how the vote totals are coming in. You write political transformation requires thinking beyond merely capturing the state. Can you have the progressive and radical transformation that can address climate change or any crisis, even the pandemic by winning at the ballot box?
2: The short answer to that is no. Uh, But whatever happens six days from now, I think we're all going to have to uh, deepen our commitment to uh, going out in the streets and supporting uh, the young people who are leading us towards an alternative future. Uh, It's not going to happen at the ballot box. Uh, That's important, but that's not going to get it done.
1: And I just wanted to say this is a really important book for people. You know, this is about Bolivia, but this is about the United States. This is about everywhere. Like uh, like Brett was saying earlier, this is about fossil uh, capital, as Andreas Malm, a past guest on our show, has discussed. Uh, and people can find our interviews with Andreas by going to com. This is about more than Bolivia. This is about the whole globalized fight against... Uh, clean energy. This is all about, it's just, it's a fascinating book and it applies so much to what is happening here within the United States, even though this is a story of Bolivia. So I can't thank you enough for being on our show this week, Brett. Congratulations on a really great book. Again, the title is Bolivia and the Age of Gas, and you can follow Brett on Twitter at Brett Gustafson. Thanks for being on our show. Thanks, Chuck. It was great. Bringing you Bong hitting journalism. Since 1996, this is hell. If you want to hear some of our coverage of Bolivia's gas war from the early 2000s, subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon as we will be sharing one of our Interviews that is currently unavailable online from back in the heady days of Bolivian, Bolivia's revolution. We want to thank Jason and Paolo for becoming the most recent listeners to sign up to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash How, which always features a classic interview not currently online and a new monologue from me. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast livestream host Chuck Merce producing today's show. Because it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, how are listeners replying to our question from Hal, which is, how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? How are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend?
0: Yeah, let me just uh, refresh the uh, situation here. See if
1: we got any new answers at the last minute. Don't forget you have to have your answer into the question from Hell by, to us by uh, Thursday at the end of the show. And we are announcing this week's winner as we do each week following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. So we'll be announcing the winner of the new Gray on Black This Is Hell t-shirt tomorrow.
0: Yeah, so Chase says, by spiking their candy with class consciousness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bradley answers. I come to the door hoping to scare them by wearing a proud boy costume. Yikes! They look at me blankly wearing normal clothes. The kids say, "What are you? What are you kids?" Or he says, "What are you kids supposed to be?" A little boy says, "We're all dead, like zombies." No, Mister. Like climate change. (laughs) What? Sebastian says. I've worked with kids all my, lo- all my working life. I'm not going near any of those things unless you pay me. <laughs> and he wants to be paid a list hell trucker cap. All, yeah, right. Yeah, all right. Warren says, <laughs> oh, crap. Was that this weekend? Jim answers, by dressing up as a William Barr. as a William Barr yeah that's me (laughs) by dressing up as William Barr and playing the baby shark dance on the bagpipes while dragging along a mechanical Rudy Giuliani head whose eyes seem to look at you no matter what angle you look at it
1: (laughs) now that's frightening
0: Uh, so our question from hell is how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend Brandon says, Rearing up, maintaining eye contact, displaying my claws and fangs in a th- threatening manner. But really, I'm more scared of them.
1: You should be in the pandemic.
0: Mason answers slowly and carefully, explaining to them the exploitation and suffering that went into making their chocolate bars. <laughs> David answers, Smoker's cough. Oh, Nice. Cody answers by telling them their parents believe in QAnon and they are potentially part of their conspiracies. Mm,
1: If not their diet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) David answers by kneeling draped in Kente cloth. Oh, God. Jeffrey answers holding out a crystal ball and saying, look in here and see your future.
1: (laughs) That's pretty frightening.
0: (laughs) And finally, Matt answers, asks... To see their papers proving they're American, and telling them if they don't have any, I'm calling immigration and taking them away from their parents and thrown out of the country.
1: You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to us at, at hellcom or to Alex and at alex at hellcom But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show. So, Richard who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. And Chicago uh, time here at ThisIsHell.com.
0: Do I have that information? In uh, an email, you do. Uh, yes, here it is. There you go. <laughs> on Thursday's show, Bree Busk on her article, Chileans mobilize in advance of a historic
1: and you can find
0: roar yes
1: roar magazine of course we'll have the moment of truth from jeff dorchin as well this week jeff takes another stab at the advertising culture tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live 10 a.m chicago time at this is hell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live show I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show because it's Wednesday. It must be Richard Norwood. Thanks to Brett Gustafson for being today's guest, and thanks to Richard Norwood for producing today's show with my most sincere apologies. Yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is Hell.